0: Welcome to Art in the Open. I'm Shelley Miller, a Montreal based artist working in the fields of both permanent public art as well as ephemeral street art. In this podcast, I'll chat with creatives and professionals who work in and around the industries of art and public spaces. To wrap up season one and 2022, I've decided to do an Ask Me Anything episode. So, today I have a good friend of mine, Adriana Palenka, sitting down with me and asking some of her questions, as well as questions that other people have sent in. Many people have also been asking when more episodes are coming, so stay tuned for fresh new interviews coming for season two in 2023. Today is a special episode of Art in the Open. I put a call out on Instagram to ask me anything. And I got a few responses. And I also have a friend today asking me those questions. Adriana Polanka. Hi. Hello, Adriana. Hi. Adriana is not a visual artist. She is a writer Mm -hmm. and general creative person who knows a lot about art. Yes. And so I thought she would be the perfect person to come in and ask me some questions that she might have and ask the questions that other people have. I like to think that I'm occasionally articulate. Um, I think you're very articulate yeah, almost all of the time. Sometimes, yeah. Yes.
1: Um, and so this was just a really fun way, it should be noted, for Shelley to talk about her process, her art, um, without having to interview herself. Which <laughs> exactly. would have been perhaps awkward. M- mind you, you could have taken on an accent and be like, Shelley Miller, please turn me. And then you'd be like, well. I, that? Thought,
0: of it. I yeah. thought of it. Yeah.
1: You could have turned it into a whole um, shtick.
0: I figured that me monologuing for 30 to 45 minutes might not be the most interesting way for people to get to know stuff about me. Having somebody else here ask me questions would be a little more intriguing.
1: So I think what we're going to do is I have some general questions. Okay. And then we're going to go into our questions. Josh from Mississauga. (laughs) 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 Um, And uh, I think what I'd like to start with is... The name of your podcast Mm -hmm. um, kind of really, the first time I heard it, it got me thinking about accessibility. And the thing that I've always admired about your artwork is I find it to be very accessible in that no matter your educational, cultural background, you're able to look at a Shelley Miller and you're able to find meaning and decode what's happening quite quickly. And that um, a personal frustration that I have is artwork, specifically more modern artwork, that is completely closed off. It's not open. It's not accessible. So what do you think it is about your work that makes it so open, that makes it so accessible?
0: Thank you for that, Adriana. I mean, I'm really happy to hear that you feel that way about the work, that it does feel really accessible and open, because I do spend a lot of time thinking about that, In my public art practice, I think about users of a space. And so every time that I'm designing an artwork for a specific site, I think a lot about not just, you know, quote-unquote general public, but some sites are quite specific. So let's say in an elementary school versus in a hospital versus in a public park or setting like that. You know, I think about who are the people that are going to see this on a daily basis. And... um, I think, in terms of like accessibility and what a broad range of people of different backgrounds, different ages, like how can they all find something to kind of uh, as an entry point to the work and so you know I think that there are some themes that I work with that are a bit more general, so in a lot of my two d murals. Um, I'm very much inspired by geometry of patchwork and quilting and fabric and textiles. And I think that everyone can kind of find some associations or references to, like, blankets and textiles and patterns of their own home life or culture. So I think that, you know, I often choose themes that I think um, a wide variety of people can identify with on some level.
1: And I think that makes a lot of sense if I think about... Your artworks, past and present, um, the basis of some of them being sugar or quilting, a lot of it is based on materials that all of us have experiences with,
0: exactly, and especially the sugar for me, is a medium that is very powerful, I think in public spaces as well as in you know in galleries and museums. But because it's so accessible, it's so everyday, and it's something that everyone has some experience with sugar. You know, kids, adults, everyone. And, you know, I think also what I like to do in my work is to have multiple layers of meaning so that you can enter the work and approach the work on a more kind of superficial, you know, wow or cool factor. But there's also... Other layers of meaning and context so that if you want to investigate a little further, or if you're somebody who has a broader knowledge base of history, you can then see other things in the work that make you go deeper. But you don't have to know those things in order to get something out of it.
1: Hmm. After your work is installed, do you go and sit in the space and watch people interact or watch people react to it? Is that something you do?
0: So you mean for all works, like Sugar
1: or permanent. Or just some of them, yeah. Just to see how people are reacting or interacting with with your work.
0: I don't do it enough. No, I don't do it enough. I mean, I think that with the sugar murals that are outdoors, I probably do it more in those situations just because I'm out in public space and life is going on around me as I'm installing it, as I go back to document it. because. Those I have to go back frequently to document. And so then I'm, I'm there, and then I can see people, how they're reacting. If I'm working, they might, like, stop and look and ask me questions. But often with the permanent works, you know, you install it sometimes when a site is still under construction, so it's closed to the public. And then it's just up, and it's just living, and I don't often go back. I do sometimes hear other people tell me, You know, what they experienced or how they felt when they saw it, which is always really, really valuable to me. But I think that my current piece that uh, was just installed in Metro Angriant, I think that one I'm going to want to go back and just kind of hang out and watch people.
1: Do you want to tell us about it
0: quickly? Well, it is two murals in the metro station. There's one on each side of the platform. And they, the, the content and the imagery relates to the history of Parc Angrion. So there's a lot of reference to animals, uh, referencing the fact that there used to be a zoo there. Um, the two pieces are separate, but there's some visual connectors between the two of them. It's fabricated in ceramic and mosaic. And I think it's like a Fabergé egg. It's just... Hmm. Beautiful and probably too pretty for a metro station. But I I think that that's that's the gift. You know, that's the thing that I wanted to give to, like, the people who just go and catch the metro and go to work, go to school.
1: Exactly. That's what I was about to say. Montreal's relationship with our metro system each station was designed with its own aesthetic, its own color palette. And they've become iconic. And I love the fact that you now have work in a metro station, because it's like you are becoming part of the whole narrative of Montreal.
0: Exactly. And that was very prevalent in my mind when I was working on the design for this project. It's a lot of weight, you know, like the weight, the gravity of this this history of the Montreal metro system and its connection to Expo and all of this, you know, legacy of famous artists who have artworks in the metro. So I definitely thought a lot about that. And I have some visual references in the artwork to kind of allude back to that sort of 60s era. Hmm. I think the color palette is also, you know, a bit retro in some respects, because I wanted the artwork to feel contemporary and relevant today, but I also wanted it to feel like it belongs in that family of artworks, as you just mentioned. So I hope that it is successful.
1: I well, no in doubt. <laughs> you know that I'm a big Shelley Miller fan. Um, but my question is, when you when you say mosaic? Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking a thousand million tiny pieces that need to be placed in an artistic fashion. Um, how do you keep chill during that process? Are you doing all of the installation of it? Is somebody else helping
0: you? I do not make the mosaics myself.
1: Thank <laughs> baby Buddha for that.
0: <laughs> I, I have mosaicing skills and abilities, but um, I work with fabricators. So I work with Mosaica Art and Design in Montreal. They have fabricated all of my ceramic and mosaic public art pieces. Uh, I used to work for them also many years ago. So I'm familiar with the whole, you know, the various layers and levels of processes, uh, working with ceramic and mosaics. So that now when I'm designing a work and just in the creation process, I'm already thinking about what treatment and material different areas will be created in which really helps in the design phase that you can you know really kind of get a sense of like what it's going to be in the end what material it's going to be and so you know i work really closely with them and in telling them what kind of treatment and technique that i want to use for different areas
1: um let's get into the behind the scenes behind the scenes Shelley miller um, when you're doing the installation of these works or when you have the fabricators who are doing the installation of the works, are you there monitoring things? Because honestly, I look at a process like that and I think of about 87 different ways that they could possibly <laughs> go wrong. I'm a very clumsy person. Um, so what is it like? Have you had major issues? Um, is it uh, – how do you make sure that everything is installed well?
0: Oh, boy. That's a big question. I mean, in terms of installation, like installing in its final place on site, I work with, you know, really excellent installers that I trust. But there are like a million things that can go wrong (laughs) and have. (laughs) Um, I think it's a balance between, you know, not wanting to micromanage but also not wanting to trust too much that other people are going to do everything they say that they're going to do. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to you have to keep on top of things. I've had, you know, situations for installations where I you know, I think that generally sculptures and 3D works are more complicated than 2D because there's a lot of weight and you need engineering <laughs> Uh, I did have one situation where uh, me and my installer went to the site just to assess the base that had been built, just to kind of make sure that before we show up with a one-ton sculpture, everything's as it should be. And it wasn't. It wasn't as it should be. You know, from, like, 20 meters away, we could see that the rebar were not completely upright as they should be. The base was just not made well so that was frustrating and annoying, and we had to tell the, the proprietor, the, the building owner, who was the one who was responsible for having his construction team build the space, that they had to redo it. And I, you know, I in some ways blame myself for not monitoring that more closely, but at some point, you know, you, you trust that professionals are going to do their job <laughs> properly, but that sometimes doesn't happen. Um, and so, you know, I think it is a balance of... Making sure that you you are keeping on top of things and not wanting to also, like I say, completely micromanage everything. Right. But things have gone wrong. Um, <laughs> another installation went awry because they wouldn't let me use my engineer. But their engineer decided that we had to build a completely, insanely ridiculous base that could have housed like a four-ton sculpture that was like a half a ton and not even very tall. Which also would have meant that my budget would have gone over by, like, five or $6,000. So then there was a lot of negotiations between well, me and them. Shelly so Miller, like, you're an artist who have thousands of dollars. Unlimited just, amounts yeah, of money just sitting can, in my bank account. In,
1: no, what? In your couch cushion. Exactly. So things go wrong. Yeah. But what I love, I think what's amazing, and what you don't realize, especially if you're a young artist, is that it's not just like you in your studio being dreamy and... Mm-hmm creating
0: there's a dreamy phase there's a dreamy phase
1: but being an artist also allows you to learn and to expand into other things that you never would have imagined engineering Mm -hmm. um i remember when you were doing um the initial stages of your concrete uh sculptures and you were learning about the concrete and how that works and and the weight of it and how and we once had a Fascinating discussion about screws <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, i don 't remember this conversation
1: well it's, it's but I believe it happened yes, exactly, um, and I love that i think that 's what 's so beautiful about being an artist is that. It's not just about your practice and your creation, but you have to push yourself in order to actually bring it to life. You have to learn about engineering and gravity and architecture. And that in turn kind of like feeds the artistic vision and it just allows you to grow and evolve.
0: Yeah, 100%. It's it's definitely like a team effort. And I always tell people you can't be limited by what you currently know. You have to trust and believe that you can go past your knowledge base – also, by working with other really skilled professional people who can help elevate you, and then in turn, you elevate them. Like, that's, I have a really great relationship with my fabricators, my installers, and it's really like this back and forth. You know, I come to them with an idea. They've never done it, and that's typical in public art. Everyone's doing stuff for the first time, and so mm-hmm. everyone is trying to figure it out as they go, and you typically want to work with people who like that who like that idea of trying to figure things out and do things that haven't been done before and figuring it out together. And it's trial and error, and it's like a back and forth of, okay, I'm going to give you a new idea, and then you're going to show me what you know how to do with your skills and expertise, and then that might give me a new idea. And then, you know, and also with each project, I've worked with some fabricators multiple times, and so then in each project, you learn a little bit more, you learn a little bit more, you push a little further, you push a little further, and that is really, that's kind of the magic You know, when you can work off of each other's expertise like that.
1: I love it. I mean, I love it that you make all this art that is contextual and rich. But then there's also a photo of you with a hard hat. Yeah. I like (laughs) taking selfies with hard hats. uh, You you make it work for you. (laughs) Um, My last question that I have on my list here of submitted questions is um, it's more about the hustle. And mm-hmm. that you've been doing this for a long time. I've known you for a while now. It's been a while, yeah, like 10, 15 years.
0: And the thing I've that I've known I, you much longer than ten uh, or fifteen years. Really? Well, my child is eleven.
1: Oh yeah, good point. <laughs> I math is not my strong suit. I would just It's been like about. Down. It's more than fifteen. It's more than fifteen. It's, yeah. Maybe it's more closer to twenty. Um, but I think the thing that I've always admired about you is you're just like relentless. Whereas I have meet a slight inconvenience and I need to have a snack and a nap, you just put on Eye of the Tiger and you just keep going.
0: <laughs> I have a lot of snacks and naps,
1: too. Well, also. Um, but this question kind of touches on the fact of you've been at this for a while. You're still hungry. You're still hustling. And, again, that kind of breaks with this whole image that we have of the artist, right? It's like it's work,
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's commitment. So, how do you keep renewing that commitment? How do you keep that hustle moving? Oh, Other than snacks and naps,
0: I'm just, I'm just so stubborn. <laughs> I just, I'm so stubborn. I won't give up. <laughs> I want to. At times, I want to give up. <laughs> um. You know, I'm really, really grateful for all of the opportunities that I've had and the works that I've done. But sometimes I just feel like I'm not done yet. You know, there's just more I want to do while I'm on this planet. And sometimes you get you get knocked down and you don't want to get back up. I've faced a lot of rejection as well. I've had successes, but I've also faced a lot of rejection. And you can't let that define you or own you. You just got to get up, figure out what you learned from it and keep on moving. There's just no alternative. You just got to keep getting back up.
1: That is a very good soundbite. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's next, Shelley Miller?
0: What's next? Um, okay, so Angrion is about to officially launch. I'm super, super excited that that's in the world and it's a thing because I've been talking mm-hmm. about it for far too long. I am actually just like in the studio now working on some new stuff. Yeah. Working on some like studio work, which is something that I haven't really done in a very, very long time. I've been very, like, commission-driven over the last 10 years, at least.
1: Well, you were raising a human.
0: It's raising a human. Yeah, exactly. And as much as I like, you know, I, I kind of, I'm, I'm driven by that competitive spirit. But right now, I want to just take this time to step back and just kind of figure out, like, well, what does Shelley Miller want to make when there isn't commission or deadline or contest. Mm. Like, let's just sort of close off the world and just get back to like creating in a studio again.
1: And does that mean looking at different materials? Does that mean looking at different concepts? Or are you just figuring that all out?
0: No, no, I've got some direction. It's funny because, you know, it's funny the way that my studio practice informed my public art practice, and now my public art practice is informing my studio practice. And what I mean by that is that when I started doing permanent public art commissions, I had never worked in a permanent material. Oh. <laughs> I applied. like So a lot of people don't know much about the, quote-unquote, percent for art program. Mm. So that's you know very well established in Quebec. There's a program throughout the whole province. Uh, the city of Montreal has their own program. Many cities have their own percent-for-art programs. And so for people listening who don't know that much about it, uh, you know, essentially it is about 1% of the construction budget for new publicly-funded buildings or significant renovations goes towards public art. So in Quebec, um, the program, you initially just apply to be considered. So it's like a pre-selection process. Artists submit their dossier, if they're accepted, it just means now you're eligible for projects. It doesn't mean you'll ever be selected for one. You're just now in the pool of artists eligible. So if projects come up, you might get shortlisted. So back when I first applied to that program and I started getting shortlisted, I had mostly been working with sugar or really ephemeral domestic materials. Nothing permanent. So the question at the time when I started getting Shortlisted was, well, what do I what do I do? Like, what does Shelley Miller, who works with sugar and ephemeral and ephemerality, what do I do that's permanent? And so that was a bit of a you know shift in my brain of how can I still take my ideas, my concepts, but work in a permanent material? And then I got so entrenched in doing permanent works, I was still doing sugar, but that was sort of a separate practice. Um, you know now. I'm looking at some of those materials that I've used and become familiar with, like concrete, and I'm re-infusing my studio practice with those materials. So another thing is that even though I've done a lot of murals referencing quilts and patchworks and fabric, I don't, and I haven't really made a lot of works with fabric, I wanna now actually make works with fabric. Mm -hmm. So I'm sort of looking at ways to fuse fabric and concrete in a new way that, again, is informed by what I've done in my public art practice, but is now going to be just more about my own ideas and concepts in a studio practice. Does that answer your question?
1: It really does. I think, I,
0: <laughs> I know
1: it, you, you can't see this, but essentially I'm just sitting here smiling at Shelley um, because uh, as a writer, um, what you're saying makes sense to what I do as well, just with a com- entirely different medium and there's this sense sometimes of having to make art that brings in the money which is still aligned with who you are but maybe you have to lean it in one direction to make it more um monetizable for lack of a better term but uh, for me, the most interesting part is always where you get to sit your, with yourself and find out what it is that you want to say. Um, and then it becomes, it's more essence of who you are. It's not influenced by um, by outside viewers or by the need to please anybody. Uh, but that being said, like I feel as if the work that you've produced for the public space has still been very you like i don't think you've had to compromise yourself at all, but I like this whole sense of self that you bring to your art and that you 're continuing to pursue and that you haven 't lost like you 're no sellout jelly Miller
0: well thank you, Adriana planka <laughs> I think too you know sometimes as artists we have a lot of ideas, right I think mean, we should that's that's sort of the goal is that you have a lot of ideas. And there's always different things that you want to try that you haven't tried. And I think it takes a lot of time. And for me, I think enough time has passed that I can now step back, look at the works I've done, and go, oh, yeah, there's a connection. Those things all relate. There's, there's you know, there's threads that kind of come back. And there's things that you might think that you've sort of forgotten about. And then it comes back. Mm-hmm. And it comes back in new ways. And that's, that's the fun thing about exploring what we've done in the past, taking it to a new direction.
1: It's step-by-step, step, one small project, one small project, and you've built a body of work. Yeah. Congratulations, lady.
0: Thanks. And after Angry Out drops, I feel like I can, I can, like, retire. I mean, I'm not gonna, because <laughs> I don't want to, but I feel like I can say, okay, this is, like... And, you know, I'm really, really proud of all my projects, but there's just something really, really special about a metro station Yeah, that I'm super excited about.
1: As you, it's, I'm very excited to see it. Do we have any other questions?
0: Do we have any other questions? Yeah.
1: I've gone through my questions.
0: Um, We have some questions from fans out there.
1: We do. And um, I'm just trying to put them in the right order. But I think one that's really interesting is... Is where do you get the inspiration to create something that lasts forever?
0: Yeah, I mean, forever. That's a that's a daunting task, of course. Um, like I mentioned earlier, I think that I try to pick and work with themes that are a bit more universal in some sense. You know, in some works there's a there's a reference to nature and trees and books, things that I think are fairly timeless. I also think a lot about colors. You know, many of my 2D works are very, very colorful. And I specifically choose a vast variety of colors. I think a lot of people, I think a lot of artists, uh, I don't know, maybe this is not fair to say, but I think there's a lot of artists who are a little bit afraid of using color in public art. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, you know, monochromatic or just like aluminum stuff. Because it it can be tricky, you know. Colors are very much based... um, Colors are timely. Is mm-hmm. that the right thing I'm trying to say? Well, they're definitely trends, right? They're dated as yeah. well. You know, we we look at some color palettes and we're like, oh that's from the sixties. Oh, that's from the early eighties, right? So golden harvest. We <laughs> remember that fridge from the seventies? Oh, is yeah. that what it was called?
1: And then, of course, there was... What was mill- the
0: green? What was the green refrigerator color?
1: I don't have that kind of cultural knowledge at okay. my fingertips. But um, also another example, millennial pink. Millennial pink. For a while, everything that was Instagrammable was suddenly that millennial pink.
0: Yeah, and you know, Pantone, Pantone every year comes year. up with the color of the year. Exactly. So whatever we think is going to be timeless for a color isn't. It's going to be dated. We know that. So, I intentionally just choose a crazy variety of colors that span every time. <laughs> um,
1: do you also and this is this is a great segue to another question from one of your fans. How does the community, your community, and travel also inspire what you do? You talk about colors, but with all the traveling that you've done, with all the people that you come in contact with, are those also sources of inspiration for what you do?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that when I'm traveling especially, I really try to immerse myself in that place and that history and, you know, try to figure out how I can draw inspiration from being in that place and definitely my travels have been very uh, influential in shaping and directing my work even back to when i first went to india for 6 months when i was 26 years old and it was a really overwhelming trip there was so much just visually and culturally that i was absorbing that it was it was hard to even know how it was influencing me but it took several years i think for me to really distill how much that trip influenced and affected my whole global outlook and perspective and shaped the direction of my work. Um, As well, travels to Brazil is really what shaped the work I do with sugar today, and researching and learning more about the history of Brazil and the history of sugar in that country. So I definitely think that I I look a lot at, at site and history of a place. Even within public art, when I'm shortlisted for a project... I always do a deep dive into the history of that place. So there have been times where I've been shortlisted for locations and buildings that are, like, really, really rich in history. So, for example, uh, last year I was shortlisted for a project at City Hall in Montreal, Hotel de Ville. I mean, no pressure there, Shelley. (laughs) Like, City Hall of a city like Montreal. So I, I I tend to sometimes in those situations research I would say around a subject, you know I'll do like a a big circle kind of a deep dive of reading and research and then slowly slowly kind of like bring it in mm-hmm. and distill it you know as we were saying before like distill it down into something that's more of an essence. So site history of places definitely influence the the resulting artwork. And it's also what I really like about that process. I enjoy that process. Maybe a little bit too much sometimes. <laughs> I spend a little too much time on the research, <laughs> but it's interesting, and I and I you know I look forward to that.
1: Yeah. And there is actually a question. Somebody wanted to know what does research look like for one of your projects? Are you going to the library?
0: <laughs> Are sometimes. You reading books? Sometimes yes. I read books, Adriana. I like to read books sometimes.
1: But also, I imagine videos, podcasts. it's It's really yeah, you have to really, look everywhere. It really
0: depends. Sometimes it's just sitting at a site and just kind of absorbing and looking at what's around. Um, with the Owl project, that was that was also a, a pretty like deep dive into research and history. And for that one, I started on the uh, the website of the Archives of Montreal. And they had tons of great stuff. You know, again, I started really generally, just like you know, typing "Angry Owl Park history."
1: <laughs>
0: what shows up? And they had uh, they had tons of great information, images historical images of the park before it was a constructed park, all these images and files for when it was in construction. That's how I found out there was a zoo there. But there was all these uh, dossiers and files and folders and boxes that were listed on their site, but there was nothing digitized. So I then made an appointment to go to their actual office You know, I gave the librarian all these lists of different boxes I wanted to see, and then she pulled out all these boxes for me. So I had to, like, file through.
1: Wearing little white gloves.
0: Wearing little white gloves, yes, looking through microfiche and all kinds of stuff. And it was just this wealth of information, of images, of a lot, actually, of just uh, negatives, Mm -hmm. medium format negatives, and slides that had never been scanned or digitized. Oh, wow. That I was, like, looking through on a loop. And so the title of that artwork is Les Boîtes Vivantes, Living Boxes. It was really, the title is about going to the archives and looking through all these boxes of information and material and kind of bringing them to life, visually creating this artwork based on all these, in some ways, random and obscure images that I found uh, in these boxes. Mm-hmm. There, was, um, there was a couple of photo shoots that were done in the zoo. In the 60s, with models (laughs) posing with the animals. With the animals? With the animals. Uh, They were bizarre, to say the least. But uh, definitely inspiring to somehow <laughs> inject that into the artwork. <laughs> so uh, some of these images were um, – so, so the women were wearing – I say the 60s. It was obviously the 60s because they were wearing, like, micro-mini skirts mm-hmm. with, like, paisley. Their hair, you know, was obviously a 60s style. One was a woman standing on a giant tortoise. As one does. There was a, several with, like, you know, a boa constrictor, like, wrapped around her. Mm, classic. Um, you know, the parrot on the shoulder. Yeah. One that was very interesting, um she was like rolling around in the hay with a small pig. <laughs> and I'm just like, what what was the purpose of this photo shoot They were just
1: they were just experimenting.
0: they were experimenting, experimenting. all right. Yeah. Can you
1: imagine when she went home? She's probably still telling that story. Right now, if we were to close our eyes, we could hear her telling her grandchildren about that,
0: yeah. So, I like to use all kinds of things that I find in my research process. And um, there's also a
1: question here about uh, actually going out and getting the materials. So, some materials, obviously, ceramics for mosaics, concrete, um, you can go out to suppliers and get that. But thinking specifically about uh, your book projects. Mm-hmm. And how you then had to go out and get all of these books that you used as a mold. So there are some things that you just can't go to a store and buy. Mm -hmm. You also actively have to go out into the world and look for these materials.
0: Yes. Yeah, indeed. So the projects, the sculpture projects I did with books, all of the books were donated. Mm -hmm. um, Save for maybe like 5% I purchased. The reason I purchased some is because I like to have embossed titles. So, sometimes, you know, if I don't get enough of those in the donation process, I'll spend a little bit of money. Like, not much. You know, you just go to, like, Renaissance and different secondhand stores. And there are beautiful books that have these lovely embossed Mm -hmm. titles that people don't want. You know, Um, for the donations, I would just put a call out to, you know, friends on Facebook. I would get a lot. One friend of mine, he actually gave me, like, about ten boxes of... um, I think it was, like, maybe, like, Mother Jones. Is that that magazine? Oh, yeah, the magazine, yes. Yeah, he used them for his, like, PhD dissertation or something. And I think his wife had been wanting him to get rid of these things for, like, (laughs) two decades. And so he's like, okay, finally, they can go towards some greater good. Um, I got, like, about 10 boxes of old math textbooks from the school board that actually commissioned me to do one of the projects, Again, just like things that are out of circulation, they have no use for. They're going to go to the recycling anyway. Um, also in that project, I initially was a little bit conflicted by wasting all these books, essentially.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But I realized how many books just get thrown into the trash anyway. You know, often you see, like, people with a, a box in front of their apartment, you know, books free, take me. And a couple of them get taken and the rest just go in the trash. Exactly. So, yeah, most of the books were just through do- different levels of donations. Um, and I,
1: you're really making my job super easy because there's also a question here about the environment. So do you think about a sustainability and impact on the environment when you create your public artworks?
0: Yes. You know, again, with the book one, uh, I was worried about that, the wastage aspect but doing it made me realize how many books actually just get wasted and thrown in the garbage. So I think that sometimes there's there's sort of a greater good in the messaging that if I can get people to think about paper and books and, you know, as the title implied, circulation mm-hmm. and where these things come from, that, like, maybe that's worth whatever small amount I'm wasting in my process. Same with sugar. You know, sure – Some of the sugar I use, you know, which is technically edible, I guess that's debatable, but it is edible. (laughs) Ask ask the wasps. Ask the wasps if it's edible. Uh, um, It gets wasted, but I think it's worth it if I can get enough people to think about the wastage of just sugar and resources and Mm -hmm. this material that we think of often, too often, as a necessity that is a complete excess in our lives. I don't know if that really fits to environment, but I think in terms of the uh, the idea of wastage, um, I definitely think a lot about about wastage. Yeah.
1: Well, it does, and I, I think the the question was probably coming from a place of, um, you know, we're just becoming increasingly more aware of how we make things, and um, you know, within it's it's for me, it's already implicit in that you're creating these public artworks that are going to technically last forever or until the next apocalypse. <laughs> so it's you're not wasting, you know, you're not creating like artworks that are fML that are that ephemeral and that you know, it's you're contributing to the long-term legacy and the long-term story of Montreal
0: and also when I work with fabric, and as I mentioned, I'm going to be doing more works with fabric. I always source it from used and secondhand materials, mm-hmm. partially because I don't want to buy new fabric. I don't want to support, you know, the industries of making more new stuff and using more resources for stuff. We already have way more than the earth can sustain of used fabric and clothes. Um, but I also just find, especially if it's more like vintage or dated, I find the, the patterns and, the you know, just like the types of fabrics – more interesting than buying something new anyway so it's kind of a win-win in that sense amazing i like that sense of like a lived experience in life in fabric as well i think it sort of holds stories in it if you use stuff that's already been used and lived in
1: amazing is there something else that you really want to talk about that's been a consideration for you, or that you've been, thats a question that you've been exploring for the future. That you'd maybe like to share with us as a bit of a teaser, just to, in your yeah. explorations, because you're in the process of figuring out what the next thing is that Shelley Miller wants to say.
0: Mm. Shelley Miller wants to go back to Brazil and do more kind of deep community work. Hey, see, that's good.
1: You you brought it.
0: Shelley Miller has. Done that in the past. I don't know why I'm talking about myself in the third person, <laughs> but somehow it it, it, it feels it's better it's... to say that. Shelley Miller has done that in the past, um, but not to the extent that she's happy with. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things that I feel like I I need to do. You know, I need to go back and dig a little deeper. And do it in a way that I can then leave and say, okay, I'm happy with this. This is, this is the way that I envisioned it to happen. Because I went to do that when my son was three. I went to Brazil. I took him for two months because I'm stubborn, like I told you. Mm-hmm. And I set up all these appointments with community leaders in Rio de Janeiro, in favelas. Because that's where I thought I needed to be, Mm -hmm. in a favela in Rio. And he was very receptive and showed me around the place and said, like, if you want to come and do this project here, it's great. You know, we'd be happy to have you. But just so you know the reality is this is a really tough place to be in and to work with communities. You know, he'd been there for years. And he said there's a lot of drug addiction, poverty If you want to work with the community and have them participate in something, that can be challenging because they need to see that they get something out of it. And I'm there with my squeamish three-year-old in my arms who's, like, angry and wants to, like, run around. And I'm, like, trying to listen to this guy. And, like, my brain is being split into four different places. And in that moment, I had this, what the F am I doing here? Hmm. I don't, these people don't know me. I don't mm. know this place. Why do I think I belong here? Mm. And it, it wasn't that uh, I'm never going to do a project here. It was just that uh, a moment where I felt like I need to just step back, go back, do some stuff in my own community, which I did then. I went to my hometown in Saskatchewan, did some stuff there, and just, like, regroup, you know? Mm-hmm. Maybe this isn't the right time. And it's been several years now, but I'm starting to feel like now the timing feels a little better
1: Well, and that's how inspiration works. Ideas will often simmer in our brains for years and years and years. Mm. And it's only 7.5 years later that all of a sudden you're sitting there sipping a cup of tea and you realize, oh, it's now.
0: Yeah. And sometimes the now never comes back and then it wasn't meant to happen. But if it comes back and it comes back and it comes back, you got to make it happen, (laughs) right?
1: So more art, more travel, more connection. Yes. I love this for you, Shelly Miller. More
0: connection. Always.
1: Connecting through words, through um, gestures, through artwork, through ideas.
0: 100%. I'm very excited for you. Thank you.
1: Thank you for sitting and taking this time.
0: Thanks for doing this. This has been fun. My pleasure. Let's do it again. 100%. Okay. (laughs) Love you, babe. Love you. For further information about today's guest and to learn more about the podcast, follow the Art in the Open link at ShellyMillerStudio.com. And don't forget to keep exploring Art in the Open.